I want to do Yumei Chabad today for the second day of Teves. We're at the base Teves. This is in the year Tafresh Yud Zayin, September 29, 1856. Uh, that's the day of passing of uh, Rabbi Yaakov Chuli Slonim. Uh, Rabbi Yaakov Chuli Slonim was a son-in-law of the Mittler Rebbe. Uh, he was the husband of Menucha Rachel. That was the name, Menucha Rachel, who was the daughter of the Mittler Rebbe. Um, the Mittler Rebbe, we learned, had several children. We've learned about three of his children, mainly. Uh, we've learned uh, about the Mittler Rebbe's um, um, the Mittler Rebbe, of course, was uh, um, a son of the Alter Rebbe, but we learn one daughter married the Tzamach Tzedek, Rebbe Nachamendel. That was Chaya Mushka. That was the right. third Lubavitcher Rebbe. Okay? Then we also learn that there was another daughter that married Rebbe Yaakov Yisrael of Cherkas, uh, who was the son of Rebbe of Chernobyl. Uh, that was the family of the, another daughter of the Mittler Rebbe who married there. And another daughter, this Menucha Rochel, she married this Rabbi Yaakov Chuli Slonim. <coughs> and we read that they were the ones that made Aliyah, his daughter Menucha Rochel, very much wanted to go to Eretz Yisrael, to live in Israel. Now, this Rabbi Yaakov Chuli Slonim, there's a very interesting story in his birth. Uh, he was the son. He he was the son of a chassid known as Reb Zalman Rezis. Uh, in the olden days, some of the time, the people, instead of a surname having a second name, a family name, they would go by the mother's name or sometimes by the father's name. This mother, her name was Reza. Reza was the name Rosie today. They would call it. Uh, this Rezis, she had. Um, uh, two, uh, um, uh, there, were, there were two, two, two brothers over there. Uh, one of them was um, uh, Reb Pinchas, and one of them was Reb Zalman. They called them Reb Pinchas and Reb Zalman Rezes. That was their sort of their family name, Roses. Reb Pinchas and Zalman Rezes, and they came from the uh, city uh, of Shklov. <coughs> Uh, the city of Shklov was a, a very strong uh, hold of those who opposed the Hasidists over there. Um, this Reb Zalman, who was the father of Reb Yaakov Chulislanim, who became the son-in-law of the Mittler Rebbe, married Menucha Rochel. So this Reb Zalman, uh, so, um, who his father-in-law uh, his father-in-law and his mother-in-law, his mother-in-law, they know, but know her name was Rezel. That's why they called him. This was not name of his mother, but the father, uh, which we're talking about, Reb Zalman. They called it Reb Zalman Rezes or Reb Pincha Rezes. It's they were named by the mother-in-law. The mother-in-law was a very wealthy woman, and she was a very important woman in the city of Shklov. And she was also very much in a position. So her daughters, both of them, married this Reb Pinchas and Reb Zalman. Uh, and 
these two son-in-laws, they weren't brothers. I said, brother, they weren't brothers. They were brother-in-laws. They both married these raises. But when they married them, they weren't Hasidim. They were great misnagdim. She was very wealthy. And she took the most Choshev, uh, the most uh, important young people. But then they turned to her uh, misfortune. <laughs> they became Hasidim. So now, two of her son-in-laws are now great Hasidim, Reb Zaman and Reb Pinchas. And she couldn't stand that, and she was like up there. Now, I'm not sure about what happened with her husband, but he didn't figure in this case. <laughs> she, she was the powerful I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what happened with the... But she used to um, cause a lot of troubles for her son-in-laws. Now, when her daughter, who was the wife of Rabbi Zalman, now the mother of Rabbi Yaakov Chuli, who married Menucha Rachel, the daughter of the Metal uh, Rebbe, uh, when his daughter, wife of Zalman, was about to give birth, you know, especially in those days, the doctors said that her life was in danger, that she was... And she reluctantly agreed uh, to travel to the Alter Rebbe. We didn't have any choice to ask the Alter Rebbe for a blessing that her uh, daughter should, uh, you know, go through this, this birth in good health. So the Alter Rebbe told her, if you promise me to stop uh, degrading and bothering your son-in-laws, so then I promise you that the birth is going to go through peacefully and you know so she had no choice she had to promise and that blessing Rabbi Yaakov Chulu was born this Rabbi Yaakov Chulu eventually became the son-in-law of the Mitla Rebbe in the year Tafresh Hay so in 5605 in 1844 uh, so Rabbi Yaakov with together with his wife Rachel together with their children, they made Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael, and they settled in the city of Hebron. And uh, the Mitla Rebbe had had a property in, already bought a property within Hebron, so they settled over there. Uh, with their coming to Hebron, they sort of revived the Hasidic Chabad presence in the city of our forefathers, uh, where, of course, Avram Yitzchak Yaakov are buried over there in the Morris Amachpelah, in the cave over there. And yeah, and their home uh, became like a center for spirituality uh, of the city. And um, his uh, resting place is in the Harazesim in Yerushalayim, in the Mount of Al Yerushalayim. Um, following this presence of the uh, daughter of the Metla Rebbe, eventually many other Hasidim, you know, followed. And we already learned that the Rebbe Rashab, but that was right before before World World War One, where the uh, sent students to revive again the city of uh, Hebron, and there was a. Uh, um, you know, a lot of unfortunate, you know, the community with the Arabs, with the things was always, uh, always problems over there. Um, eventually, uh, the yeshiva that used to be in Hebron 
actually went over to Yerushalayim, went into Jerusalem and continues in Jerusalem. There is no uh, official Chabad yeshiva now in Hebron. Besides, you know, they rebuilt you know, Kiryat Arba over there, they have the, the Jewish settlement, but uh, that, was the, um, that was the story with them. Now there is another, um, this was in Tafrej Yud Zayin, there's another entry here uh, that on the second day of Tevis is in Tafshin, that's already in 1940. And this was uh, the day that the uh, previous Rebbe has escaped, was freed from Poland during the Second World War. Well, that was the ransom was paid to um, move him out. Let's see here what it, uh, what it says over here. And then in a minute we'll hear what you're saying. Okay. It says that um, the World War II broke out in the month of Elul of Tafresh Sadiq Tess. It was yeah. October 1st, 1939. 1939. Yeah. Um, so the previous Rebbe, the previous Rebbe uh, settled, moved from Warsaw, he moved to Atvosk. He was in, in Atvosk and he came to Warsaw to, on, on route to Riga in Latvia. Uh, the war was such that there was no possibility to come up, go out from Warsaw. So he had to remain in Warsaw for three months and um, went through all the terrible... Uh, the and they went right. through, it was yeah. just impossible. There was another entry later on. Um, that was the time that America had not yet got involved right. in the in the war and the Germans were trying to be in peace with the Americans they tried to to placate and therefore the the direction to trying to save the Rebbe came uh, by um, direction to save the Rebbe came by means of trying to work with the embassy the German embassy that was in the United States to influence that way. Uh, that turned out to be successful. And there were several times that there were high-ranking German officers that came to the home in which the Rebbe was hiding in Warsaw, and they asked about the Rebbe. They wanted to know if the Rebbe was there, but the people that were around the Rebbe, they didn't know that those people have come to extract the Rebbe, right. to take him out. Oh, okay. So they always answer, there's no such a person in this home over here. Uh, but it, later on, the people found out that these, guys, these people are there to looking for the Rebbe to take him out, they were around him. So in order for the Rebbe to be able to go to Latvia, he first had to go to Berlin. He had to go to, into Berlin, into the lion's den, so to speak. Uh, Traveling then was right on the front, of the front lines of the, of the war. So in order to prevent of the German soldiers who were uh, bloodthirsty to attack Jewish people, so if they were going to see people that have beards and payas, you know, that all they need. So they found a Jewish person who was an army 
in uh, he was a uh, uh, a soldier in the First World War II in Germany, and he put on his German uh, uniform, and he put on all of his medals, medals that he had uh, received for being a hero and everything else after the war. And he went along with the Rebbe as an escort to go along with the Rebbe. Several times along the route, they tried to do bad to the Rebbe. But this German soldier intervened and he protected them that they shouldn't touch them. When they came to Berlin, they needed to stay there for the entire Shabbos. And they were brought into the Jewish community home that was in the city. On the next day, the people from the Latvian embassy came. They took the Rebbe to, uh, to Riga, to uh, move them to Riga. There's in another place, he quotes here, that uh, after a lot of pressure from the American government uh, has... Uh, mounted a lot of pressure, also the head of the intelligence uh, person by himself, he intervened to protect and to uh, help the Rebbe. He gave an instruction to his assistant, who was the head of the um, intelligence, the German intelligence in Warsaw, that he should find the Rebbe and he should take him out of there. The head of the intelligence in Washington, the German intelligence, found the house in which the Rebbe was, but the people of the house didn't know who he was, and they told him that the Rebbe is not at home. So after several days, he came back to the house and he told them that he came to take the Rebbe out. And he himself took the Rebbe and his family, moved them to Berlin, and the Gestapo along the way, those wild animals stopped him, but the head of the intelligence showed them that he had received orders to take these captives to Berlin. So one way or the other, I mean, this was a uh, definitely a miraculous and an unbelievable kindness of Hashem to provide from the lines then, you know, to even think about that you have the Germans themselves, whether it was the head of the intelligence in Warsaw, or whether it was uh, from the embassy, the German embassy over there, but either way, it is the Germans themselves that were uh, there to save and extract the Rebbe from there, from, from Latvia, and eventually, of course, the Rebbe came uh, to the United States. So that all took place on the uh, second day of Tevis. On the, uh, in, this, in this particular thing, uh, he was taken out. This was in 1940, I mean, right in the 1940. Tevis <coughs> uh, in 1940. So that was. 19... Yeah, right beginning of 1940. Oh, the beginning. Right in the beginning, yeah, January, okay. right? Must yeah, be right in January. Yeah, because September 1st was the invasion. And the into war was, Poland. Into Poland. Yeah. The war was over 30 days later. Poland had given in. Yeah. Poland, yeah. They, they just walked in and yeah. took over. There was nothing. Yeah. Oh, same thing with Austria. Yeah, but this was different because 
that's what created World War II, was the invasion of Poland yeah. because of the treaty with the, the French and the British. They gave them a mandate to be out. They didn't go out. Yeah. So that's when the war erupted. Yeah. But the United States wasn't going to go into the war. I know, until Japan bombed us. That's what. That's uh, was, we got Don't forget, you were dealing with an American government that was anti-Semitic. Oh, I know. FDR. There was only yeah. one Jew in the whole cabinet. And I think it was, I can't remember what, what department it was. It was in the uh, finance department. The treasurer? Yeah. Was the treasurer? Yeah. There was one Jew, because when Roosevelt brought in secretaries or anybody into his government, it wasn't what their religious affiliation was, it was their capability. But historically, they claim in genealogy, if you go back far enough, the Roosevelts were Jewish. Because hmm. they, were, they, were they were Dutch, and they were in the shipping business. And that's how they amassed, amassed their fortune. Mm -hmm. Franklin Roosevelt's grandfather was a very, in the, you know, in those days it was the only way to move transportation from one end of the world to the other. Right, shipping. And they came to America, he came from a very privileged silver spoon family as his cousin, and all, they were all in the shipping business. Right. But what I'm getting at is, it wasn't until 1912, 1913, that the Jew actually got a prominent position in American government. And that's when Brandeis was made. Yeah. And the only reason Brandeis got that position... Because other was Brandeis. Yeah. Was because he was a, a lawyer. Yeah. And he wrote the workman's comp laws that are used today yeah. without the whole United States. And that was... So what they want... And so at that point, they were trying to get different religious groups on the court mm -hmm. to just diversify the court and that's how he got that yeah. position. One of the uh, anti-Semites was Hull. He was Secretary of State, H-U-L-L. -L. Oh, Cordell Hull? Yeah, Cordell Oh, yes. Roosevelt himself. And yeah. Longridge, too. I don't, uh, you know, you gotta realize one thing about Roosevelt. He was a dictator. Yeah. He wasn't a president. When the cabinet sat mm. down, he didn't care what anybody said. Mm. He would listen to them, but he still did what he wanted. But his wife is the one who got the war refugee board passed in 1944 to bring Jews over. And they went to Oswego, New York, upstate New York. Yeah, and it was also Truman that integrated the military, that brought the blacks with the whites. Uh -huh. But see, that's what it started. But then it died out because, and he was, a, he was a personal, the reason Israel got recognized so fast is when he was in business in Missouri, he was a haberdasher. His partner was Jewish. Yeah. And his partner kept calling him to wreck, you know, about the whole thing. And Chaim Weizmann was in the United States, and he wanted him, the president, to meet him. And the president said, I can't. It's not a recognized state. So, but he did meet him. He went in the back door through the kitchen into the White House, and they sat and they and spoke. And he implored and And they, and they both the sat history. there. And so finally, the pressure from his friend forced him to recognize the state. But I don't know that, but I know the Soviet Union recognized yeah, it. Yeah, it did. But I don't know if it was the same day or the next day, actually, I think before the United States. Yeah, they did. They recognized it first. And that was a communist. So that's ironic, is here we got a, a, a real, you know, a Soviet government that's against religion and against everything, and they were one of the first to recognize the government. Mm -hmm. They probably had most Jews in the Soviet Union. That but they was didn't the recognize religion. Yeah, but they had the, the bottom Oh, at that point, have, they had the largest Jewish population largest in the Jewish world. The largest Jewish population in the world. Because for, before World War II, Poland oh, had the I largest population of Jews. Mm -hmm. And the only reason the Jews were in Poland is because of the Polish king's girlfriend. He had a Jewish girlfriend. Mm. Okay? And 
you know that in, in, in Catholicism, they're not allowed to loan money and charge interest. Well, that comes from Judaism. So, but the, so what it was is the economy of Poland was so stagnant. Oh. So they gave incentives from the Jews from Germany and the east and west, well, east, the western part of Europe to come in and revive the mm -hmm. economy. And that's how we met the And problem. that's how <laughs> it, the, and it was, and became very prosperous. Yeah. And that's why there was such a large influx. Of such but you see, but you there. see, it says that um, God Intervenes. dispersed the Jewish people amongst all the nations. So one of the things it was a kindness, so that in case they get in trouble in one place, they should always have be, another place to go. And there's always some other Jews elsewhere. And um, yeah. you see, even though there seems to be like reasons how things transpired, but there was a master plan over there. This was uh, right. Hashem's want and Hashem's will, and the same thing you talk about, like the state of Israel, and you, you're, uh, you know, surprised how Russia was the one that one of the proved first. that. But, you know, the heart of, it says, uh, there's a verse that says that, Lev Melachim Vesorim Biyad Hashem, the heart of the officers and kings, is in God's hand. Hashem but this was makes Stalin. them. Yeah. This was Stalin. I mean, yeah. We're not talking well, about. So yeah. that well, that proves the point even more yeah. that <laughs> even somebody like like a Stalin, yeah. still you know when Hashem makes his heart. The problem mostly we have is with Jewish people because Jews have freedom of choice in, in a certain ways that they can make trouble. <laughs> but you know, I think I'm, you know, I'm, they I'm, can I'm, ruin it sort of. Yeah. I'm not know. positive. I think Golda Meir was the first ambassador to the Soviet yeah, Union, the 19, and then she went to the shul in Moscow, yeah. which created chaos oh, yeah. in uh, there, and Stalin was to hear her. beyond yeah. dealing with that. And because, she gave the Russian people hope. Because all these thousands of Jews in Moscow came out into the streets, which was prohibited. Yeah. Jews couldn't gather. Yeah. And here she was, and they couldn't tell a, an official of a, of a government not to do it. So that created a lot of surprise. They let her in, and she brought prayer books with her too. Yeah. And you know, it's people. like you were talking about how they dispersed. You know, in, in Germany, all these little city states before um, uh, Bismarck consolidated yeah. the country. You know, everyone and there was such uh, discrimination that the, and the, that's why they came to America. Uh -huh. And they came to America, and they couldn't go in the banking business because Jews were prohibited. Right. So they went to Wall Street. Uh -huh. So they became the bankers of the bankers. This is the early 1900s or 1800s? This is in the 1870s. After. Okay. okay. Yeah. But what people fail to realize, in World War I, it was the Jewish bankers, the Jewish um, brokerage houses in Europe, the investment bankers, the Goldman Sachs and all of the Warburg and Pincus, yeah. they financed the German war. In Germany? In Germany. They German raised bankers. the money through bonds to give Germany to fight the war. To the Kaiser. Like the rabbi said, it's the Jews. So, just <laughs> give you, so you see, everything, you know, here on one end, you know, it's one, and, and, that, and because, you know, it was so bad in some parts of Germany in the late 1870s, the Jews were, you know, they were killed in the streets, just yeah. like in, in, in the Soviet Union. And this was a civilized society. This is a blip, America, right now, that we're living in such peace. Well, let the, um, but just, you know, as we see in this week's Parsha, we just started reading it by Yetzir, Yaakov, there is a whole story that seems to follow, you know, one incident after the other incident.
And but this was actually God's master's plan to have the Jewish people go down to Egypt. And yeah, but it's it started off with uh, Jacob in this week's parsha. Vayetze Yaakov. He he goes down to Laban and he has all of his family over there. And then eventually the brothers take and they sell their brother and they sell him into Egypt. And then and then all of the Jewish people leave, leave and go down to Egypt. And then eventually to go out and, and to, come back uh, up to, to the land of Israel. So you know, a lot of times, a lot of things take place in the middle. And while, you, while it's taking place, you don't see the whole picture. Well, you know but then history, things get pictured. You know what they say in history? What goes around comes around. Yes. And it's true. History does repeat itself. Yeah. But the thing is, they say you have to learn from history. Absolutely. But if learn. you've learned, yes, because if you learned what happened, you'll know what's coming. Hitler said they didn't do any, the world didn't do anything about the Turkish killing the Armenians, and no one's going to do anything about us killing the Jews. Yeah. Well, the test, the whole test with Hitler was each invasion, especially Czechoslovakia, mm -hmm. he tested the British. Yeah. And the British are very passive people. They used to be warmongers, but warmongers become passive. And Hitler tested them. Yeah, and no and when they went to Sudetenland and they didn't bother him, and then he went over to the, um, uh, um, the land that they took uh, from, no, on France and Germany where the industrial zone was, the Alsace-Lorraine oh, yeah. area, because that's where the industrial heart of Germany, and they gave, France took over as reparation for the war, and when he came in and took that over, then he said, that's it. Yeah. And nobody stopped him from building arms. Yeah. Nobody enforced anything. said it's the bystander that's almost or as guilty as the offender because they didn't speak out. Like Britain but was the bystander. You know who I, bl I, bl I blame World War II on France. France is the culprit. In. Because yeah. at the Treaty of Versailles, France said, I will not sign a treaty. This is what we demand. We want reparation. We want Germany to pay for everything. And we want to put them into the ground. We want to keep our foot on them. And you can't do that to a people. And make them pay the reparation. They couldn't afford to pay it. So the people were starving in the streets. People were going with wheelbarrows of money. And the country was going into a severe depression. Oh, this is after World War One, Right, yeah. in the 30s. Meanwhile, the rest of the world was, was flourishing. Well, we had our But own Germany depression. wasn't. Yeah, but you know, in the in the twenty in the middle twenties. But the thing is, you can't do that. Late twenties was the depression, early. 30s. And, and 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 Wilson was against it, but he was outnumbered, because he had the British was siding with the French, which was very unusual because they were always yeah. warmongers right. amongst each other. That they had to go living side by side. And, right, I know Lenin promised the Russian people oh. food, land, jobs. If you look at it, just say one thing in history, and we talked about this. I don't know if you were here. If you don't keep people's stomachs full, you have a right. revolution. Yes. Because I told you the story that the that the ship was going down with the grain down the Rhine was was heading to Austria for food for the troops because they were also starving in the Austro-Hungarian. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Germany made the mistake of taking all the farmers and putting them into the military in World War One. There was nobody to grow the crops. Oh. So what happened? The people are rioting in the streets. The Kaiser doesn't know what to do. This barge comes down full of grain. They hijacked it. Mm -hmm. It was heading there. Oh. Okay. So if you don't feed the, you got to feed right. the troops. You got to feed the people. And if you don't do it, They're you have a revolution. And what happened right. in the Soviet in Russia? 
under, yes, under the Tsar. You had revolution way. because yeah. the people were in the streets, there was no wheat. I mean, things were bad to start with, but that's the culmination. That's why they had to pull out of World War I. They signed the treaty and they walked away. But things weren't any better under communism. No, they weren't. But in any event, listen, somebody's running the world and hopefully... No, nobody's running the world. Shem is running the world. Yeah, individuals, I don't think half of them know what they're doing anyways. Okay. Yeah, but that's it. But the, the, the thing is uh, that we have to try to make this world a better place. And we have to teach the world. Because you have, to, um, you have to say that we do see that the world has progressed a lot no in this sense it. of responsibility, Father. When you yes. have a, oh, a disaster happening in people some run. country, people are always there to help. Right. Other countries have nothing invested there, but they'll help. Right. We have progressed as a human race. Mm-hmm. Instead of being just selfish, living for ourselves, we realize that we have to extend ourselves. There's a lot, a lot, a lot more to go. But this is but unbelievable. But it is, has become, the world has become, the world has learned. Abraham started off this with years ago, but the world has learned. The Jewish religion has slowly but surely infiltrated the conscience of people, and people have responded in various different ways. A so we are, and that. that, and Mashiach is going to bring the world to its okay, ultimate. So, so the perfect example is that, that the United States Constitution is based on Jewish law. On Jewish law. Think about it. When the, when the Constitution was written, it was so everybody would have a right, okay, and it wouldn't be a dictator, number one. Number two, every time there's a question about something, where does it go? To the Supreme Court. It's like having a group of rabbis sitting there and interpret yeah. the law. Yeah. So, Five rabbis, so now you've got nine rabbis sitting on the Supreme Court in Washington, and this year they make Lava. a decision, right? In 20 years, that same case will come back and you get a different decision. Is it the yeah. same way when the rabbi sits inside his Talmud? Well, at a certain level, to okay. a certain, to a certain but base, level. The basic concept is read what Alan Dershowitz says about no, but that. But the difference is that the laws of the people of the country, even though if they're based, but they're human, they're human made, they're based and, on the human intelligence and the human uh, condition. And that changes with the condition, that changes with the human that's what experience. The but the Torah is eternal. The Torah is, the Torah's law is eternal. It goes through and it's not changed because it is beyond, it's beyond time. It's not okay. a product of the people. It's a product of the divine. And that's why it lasts and it goes over. But, but, the, but what I'm getting at is, is there's a point in here where there's an interpretation, there's a discussion, and it's not etched in stone. Right, like a dictator. Exactly. Okay. So the you can figure it out. You can figure it out. And, and, you, and it, what it is, is, is Dershowitz says in it, his constitutional, as a constitutional professor at, at Harvard, he bases American law, mm-hmm. it goes back to biblical times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've heard also that the, um, the Rebbe once said, I'm no expert in the various different kinds of governments. Mm-hmm. There is, we have all kinds. Of course. So the Rebbe says, that the good parts of every system comes from the Torah. So the good, the the, the positive parts from the systems, so, you know, there are some positive ideas in the communist regime too. There are some ideas over there. The The good, but the good 
Uh, and each point is based on the Torah, and the rest is yeah, <laughs> when they run into the problems. What else has changed society is technology. Yes. Just think, in the last 50 years, there's more technology than all of human history. But now with technology, we can understand, like we, we read a, a mission that says, uh, look, think what's above you. There's an eye that sees, an ear that hears, and everything that you've done, that you're doing, is being written down. So now with the NSA over there uh, making their surveillance on the phone calls of a prime minister, hey, so you say, hey, you know, that idea sounds, somebody away is listening, hey, you know what, the technology is happening every day and every minute. Everything you're doing is being written down, it's being recorded, and it's and it's going to be played back to you. Okay, so now I'll give you an example. You bring back one of, you bring Abraham back and show him the world today versus then. What would these people expect? But they Moses, they right? are the one that, that, that yeah. started it out, and they you know. So think about. But I, but I, I guess the point that I that I want to make, we'll leave it with this. Yeah. Point is that Abraham started something. It didn't catch on to everybody immediately, but it's catching on. It's catching on. People are. Realizing there's plenty of tyrants out there, there's plenty of gangsters, there's plenty of savages out there. They're always loving. The, but the impact and the influence of the uh, Judea, you know, in the idea of monotheism and responsibility and accountability, and that you know our actions count and that, that matter, and we're supposed to, and we're part of the whole, and all these ideas are catching on. And people are responding slowly, in a lot of people in various different ways. But we just got to keep at it and make this world a better place. Spread the Noahide laws for all human beings, the Jewish people, to keep the Torah. And, you know, Mashiach will come and the world will come into perfection.